Hi everyone, it's Dina McKay, and I'm back with a brand new episode of Black Tech Unplugged, the podcast that allows Blacks in tech to share their authentic stories with you, the listener. On each episode, the guest talks about how they got into tech, their work in the industry, and lessons they've learned during their journey. You can find full show notes for this episode on blacktechunplugged.com. On this episode, I have Sanango Akpem. He is a designer, illustrator, and the founder of Pixel Fable, a collection of interactive Afrofuturist stories. For the past 15 years, he has specialized in collaborating with clients across the world on flexible, impactful digital experiences. He is currently the VP of Creative at Nava, and previously he was a designer director at Constructive, a social impact design agency. The child of a Nigerian father and a Dutch-American mother, Sananga grew up in Nigeria, lived in Japan for almost a decade, and now calls New York City home. Living in constantly shifting cultural and physical spaces has given him unique insight into the influence of culture on communication and creativity. On this episode, Sanango and I talk about how to get into tech. Tech was not his initial career path, and so he describes the process that it took for him to actually get a role in tech. Talk about the various types of roles you can have as a designer. We also talk about why diversity and inclusivity in design is very important. And lastly, we talk about what it's like to work at a civic tech organization, which is NAVA. I hope you enjoy this episode. And if you do, make sure to rate with five stars and subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this episode today. Now, let's get it. Hi, everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of Black Tech Unplugged. I'm joined by Sanango Ekpim. And Sanango, so great to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. So Sanango, for my guests who might not be familiar with who you are, want to take a moment and have you do a brief introduction of yourself. Uh, these are always hard. Uh, hi, everybody. <laughs> uh, I am Sanango Akbem. Uh, my pronouns are he and him. I'm the VP of design at Nava, which is a civic tech company based in, in Washington, D.C. I'm myself I'm based in New York. I am also uh, somewhat of an illustrator, although I don't get as much time to do that as I would like. And yeah, I've been a designer for quite a few years now. Uh, I won't date myself by telling you exactly how many. Okay, so you won't date yourself by telling us how many, but we're going to go through your journey today, so <laughs> that might give away some clues. All right, all right. People can be Sherlock then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so Sanango, let me start with tech was not your original first plan when it came to a career path. So my first question is, how did you even get into tech? How did you become a designer? So... I, I went to Michigan, the University of Michigan, and spent my formative years yeah, as a creative person, I guess, studying printmaking. Mm -hmm. And I was sure that I was going to become a, a printmaker, a digital lithographer. And during those years, you know, when Apple computers were still super new and the internet hardly existed, a lot of the stuff that I was doing as an artist was using polymer plates, which is just like a, a type of a plastic plate to print off images from a computer, duotone images, so just like black and white, I would ink those up and then print them to do like CMYK and four color variation prints. Mm -hmm. And I was sure that I was going to continue to do that. There weren't that many people in the world who were, who were using that printing technique, combining the digital world and then the printed. And yeah, I think I had a teacher who 
very gently advised me to perhaps take a little bit of time away from school before I committed to going to get my master's. And so I decided to go to Japan. And I went to Japan. I lived there in total for seven years. And for a long time, for about four or five years, I, I was an English teacher. So yet another kind of like weird career transition from being an artist to being a teacher. And while I was there, I started a, a company and I manufactured, made handbags, wallets, bracelets, and so on. And I needed a website to sell all this stuff. So I kind of dusted off some of my very, very old, you know, Dreamweaver notes uh, from when I was in college, pirated a copy of, of Dreamweaver from a torrent site and taught myself how to code. And that was the point at which I became a designer rather than an artist, I guess. Moved to New York in 2010, got a job, my first real job as a designer in a marketing team at Cambridge University Press. From there, I went to an agency for five years, and then most recently to Nava, and I've been here for almost two years now. So yeah, just steadily jumping around, you know? Yeah. And Snago, I want to go back and touch on, you mentioned that you originally went to Japan and when you came back, you were able to get a design role. I want to talk through that process because it's probably not as easy as we're making it sound. <laughs> and so I want you to tell my listeners, what are some of the things that you had to do in order to actually land a role after coming back from being abroad? Yeah, this is a great question. So I refuse to attribute this to anything but luck. Uh, there's many things that happen in life where if you work hard and you practice, like you can increase your chances of luck. Perhaps that was the case here. So arriving in New York, I think it was January 2010, was the height of the recession. Didn't know anybody in the city except for you know two or three people who weren't in the creative services world at all, the bankers, friends of mine from college. And I was out of work, I think, for about six months. I got one gig doing just like some internship type of stuff at a place in, in Soho that paid a few bills. But I had sent out, I think I looked back at one point and it was over 130 resumes and nobody was going to hire somebody who didn't have any professional design experience. I was on my last month of rent and I sent out a resume to Cambridge University Press. And it just so happened that the team that was hiring there was the English language teaching division of the press. And I used to use those books when I was a teacher. And so I noted that in my cover letter that I, I knew everything about their business essentially already and got an interview and got hired. Blind luck. Uh, there's nothing else to it. And now we're in the time of the great resignation. Yeah. And so people are looking for roles again. And looks, and I think that's great inspiration piece there for them. So wanted to make yeah. sure to call that out and yeah. also wanted to transition into, okay, so you land your first job back in the U.S. What was that experience like? Yeah, another really interesting question. So to kind of go back to what you were saying about the, the Great Recession, you know, what we see quite often, people changing careers, mm -hmm. deciding to opt out completely, et cetera. I find it interesting that there's a lot of people in and out of tech, specifically the design world, who are coming in as a second career, people who have worked for years as you know, program managers or have worked in HR for years and years, and finally are like, I, I want to do that instead. I want to make websites. I want to do research. I'm ex interested in user experience. And so they transition into the field. What we traditionally think about is like early career folks, and this is me again, showing my age, 
is people who honestly don't know a lot about anything, mm. don't know how to write emails, don't know how to communicate in a formal setting, are completely raw, and they don't have any real design experience. In so many cases, that's not, in fact, what's happening. And people are coming in with a lot of really strong professional experience. And this is like a new thing that they're growing into. So for me, I think it was similar going to Cambridge. I, you know, I was a, a senior teacher and area trainer for a long time when I was in Japan. I wrote and delivered on the job trainings, you know, even went so far as to like pick up new teachers at the airport and, and bring them to their apartments. So I was a pretty senior person and did a lot of business schedule management, that sort of stuff, project management. So I had all of that when I came to Cambridge and I just needed to then apply what little I knew. And so in your first role, what are some of the skills that you picked up being that you were newer to design, but you obviously had that creative spirit? All right. So I don't think I have this on my, my portfolio anymore, but for those who know, it's not a secret that the publishing industry is a few years behind the, you know, the tech industry as a whole. A lot of the things that uh, you know, we consider to be modern software design practices don't really get used or haven't been used in publishing very much. When I went in there, I think one of the first things that I realized was I could add a lot of value to that team by just being the most up-to-date and the most modern possible, because a lot of people didn't know. When I was at Cambridge, I was the one who built the first responsive websites at the company. And I just kind of did it on my own because I wanted to show people the power of the technology. You know, so that was like an important lesson is sometimes you have to kind of be cutting edge. And the second point I'll make there is there's an element of showmanship that I think can be important when it comes to design and when it comes to tech. So here's the, the use case. And I don't think this is on my, my portfolio anymore, but I wanted to give a, a brown bag, like a, a lunchtime talk. And I wanted it to be focused on the ways that we can use content effectively in a digital setting. So a little bit of content strategy, a little bit of like visual design. I realized that there was this great idea, which is about information sent. And it basically says that we must imagine that as humans, we are animals in a forest and we're hunting for information, AKA food, but it's a dark forest. It's scary. And there's a lot of stuff that we don't want prickly porcupines and pits and so on dead links. And so it is the job of the designer to make the links and make the information on their site as attractive and as you know good smelling as possible. You know, so you, you do a search for something on uh, Google search results and you look at the, the results and you can kind of get a, a scent, a hint of like, is this going to be what I want? And you click on the thing that you want. Anyway, so I was going to do this whole talk about this. And uh, the showmanship part that I'm talking about is I printed out a bunch of almost life-size animal headshots, like a gorilla giraffe, uh, some parrots, you know, like a lemur and stuff like that. And I stuck them all around the office, just on the walls. And I had these little notes that were like, you know, do you know what your audience is clicking on? Or, you know, where does that link go? And stuff like that. And find out at the, the brown bag session, you know, so all these people showed up and they're like super excited about the topic. But you got to kind of add a little jazz in there a little bit if you want people in organizations to really hear you and be interested in the stuff that you're talking about. Yeah. Add a little <laughs> razzle dazzle, right? A little razzle dazzle. That's right. Yeah. I think too, when you do something like what you're mentioning, 
it shows the excitement that you actually have for the topic. You know what I mean? And I feel like that's missing sometimes when people are speaking or, you know, just like trying to gather people to have a conversation, sometimes it's missing that excitement. So you don't really know what you're walking into. But for me, if I saw that, that would create excitement in me too. Yeah. Yeah. You said that you did things that basically were not part of the job description. Like you just went above and beyond. And the reason that I want to go back and touch on that is because I feel like in today's group, because of everything that goes on at work, it's not easy to go above and beyond. And wanted to get your insights around that of ways that, especially from a designer perspective or in any role, you can go above and beyond and really show your value like you did. I'm trying to think about how to phrase this. The older I get, I think the more jaded I get. I was young. and excited. I thought everything was cool. And I would be up until three o'clock in the morning, like coding new things. Mm. Um, That was a period of time in my life. And that may be a period of time in listeners' lives. Like you're, you're excited to do this stuff and you don't care. You're just going to throw caution to the wind and do whatever it takes. Cool. I think remembering also that any job is an exchange of value Mm. and you exchange the value that (laughs) comes to you, you know, you get paid to do something and then you do that thing. There are times when you want to extend that, but the above and beyond shouldn't come at the expense of like your own personal life. It shouldn't come at the expense of your family. And you also shouldn't just do stuff without any possibility of, you know, a reward or, um, you know, increased compensation and so on. Like you got to look out for yourself as well. And I think Another realization, you know, as we're talking about like career history and so on, is that the the design industry, tech industry, I use those terms interchangeably, have really moved on from what they used to be. Mm. When I was first coming up, you know, web designer slash webmaster, we did everything. We coded, you know, taught myself how to code, use PHP, like figured out WordPress enough so that I could build whatever I wanted. That was what a designer did was all those things and the content strategy. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, the, the industry is fractured and we have front-end developers, content strategists, you know, researchers, UX researchers, visual designers, UX, UI researchers. And it, it's very interesting kind of this like, you know, explosion, this evolution of all of the different types of roles that people can have. There's an additional angle here, which is it's already rare to be a black designer mm. in America. You know, what are we like two, 3% of the total population of designers? It's extremely rare. You know, I'm, I'm the VP of design. There are very few of us <laughs> in the world. And, you know, it's even more rare to have somebody who is extremely senior, you know, an art director, design director, creative director, VP, who is, is black or a person of color. To the listeners, Acknowledging that if you are Black, if you are a person of color, there are going to be times when you do have to do more in order to have your worth acknowledged. And it is a terrible, terrible system. And we work to change it, but to acknowledge that and to know that, uh, you know, that's going to be the case sometimes. You know what, since we're on the topic, I do want to elaborate on that a little bit. As we know, tech from a holistic point of view, obviously, people of color are the minorities. But even if we get down, like you said, to that niche of just looking at designers, the number is extremely small. 
from your perspective, what was that experience like? Because it sounds like in most cases, you probably were the only one in the room very often in your career. Yeah. At Cambridge, definitely. You know, I would remember they would fly me out to Cambridge in the UK every few months or whatever. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I would go to like the annual leadership summit. I was the only black person there. It's intimidating. I've been in that position a lot in my life. Even when I lived in Japan, there are, as you may expect, not that many black people living in in Japan. So you need to remember (laughs) where you are. And you need to remember that like your 125% is often somebody else's 100%. It is, it is just a fact of this society that we live in. But corollary to that is you then blaze whatever trail you want to, and you pull people behind you and make sure that the, the ranks come up behind you as well so that other people don't have to, to be the only one, you know? Yeah, definitely. And for people who are in that situation, because I love what you just said about your 100% could be someone else's, I believe you said 125% or vice versa. For people who are in those situations, what tips or advice do you have for them in order to stay motivated and inspired when they get into those particular situations where what you're giving just might not be enough or exactly what someone's looking for? Yeah, that's a tough one. I think for designers, I will speak to designers since I am a designer. Yes. Don't neglect your portfolio. (laughs) This is going to sound so mercenary, but let's have at it. Um, It's important to make sure that you, you know, in your portfolio, you're gathering the work that you want to be recognized for and that you want to be known for. Talk about yourself for people who don't like portfolios or, you know, they don't necessarily do that sort of thing. Maybe you're a front end developer and like you can't just show it, you know, a page of code you know, writing at the end of the year, your list of accomplishments or the end of the month, your list of accomplishments so that you stay grounded in how you're improving, you're identifying the types of things that you want to do. I think that's important. Having a network outside of your work as well. You know, not every company is blessed with like a large uh, population of people of color, or, you know, maybe you're working in a country, which is, you know, not as diverse as you may want, et cetera, et cetera. So making sure that you have alternate networks of supporters, I think is, is super important as well. And, you know, that can be professional or it could be personal, but that's a way to ground yourself outside of, you know, not finding your self-worth only through, you know, work or the professional scene. And I want to talk through the inclusivity of design because as much as we think about tech and diversity and inclusion, I don't think that a lot of times we consider it from a design perspective. And I feel like some of those conversations around design inclusivity is limited. I don't know if that's your experience as well. Yeah, I think the word has has been twisted. I don't mean that in a, you know, a totally negative way, but I mean, it, it has expanded. Maybe this is a better way to say it is it's expanded to account for a lot of <laughs> different opinions and different perspectives, uh, not all of which are an honest way of looking at things like people use it in, I think, a you know, negative context as well. So diversity as a goal, sure, that's good. I think that, you know, in all the teams that I've worked on, they have been made stronger by the fact that it's people from different worlds, different languages, different religions. The design industry has a lot of work to do to get to a place where the teams that do the work look like the people that they're designing for. And yeah, there's, there's so many things that I think happen in the design industry 
And you know, you, you realize that if the person who had designed that interface or the person who had made that thing actually looked like the person who needed to use it or had their experience, it would have been a completely different thing. So just a you know a point about that. So I'm gonna put you on the spot for with two probably relatively <laughs> heavy questions. All right, go ahead. First question is in order to be an overall more inclusive design, what are three ways that you think that companies should start putting into their process in order to be inclusive to everyone in the things that they make side? Yeah. Yeah. So number one is actually do your research. You know, companies like I think it was IKEA spent years and years in Southeast Asia learning the market before they decided to enter, you know, to be able to build, you know, culturally relevant and specific materials and, you know, and goods to understand uh, the, you know, the total market. Like there is an imperative to conduct research, to talk to people, to speak in their language so that you know, when you, when you create things for them, you, you understand and they are, they become you, you become them. So I think that would be one very important thing. The second is having internal systems that allow you to be as flexible as possible. So very concrete design example, which is text length, the, the length of a word in Chinese could be different than Japanese, could be different than German, could be different than English you know, it could be different than Tagalog and making sure that your design systems, the way that you have your Figma files set up, like all of that, allow you to quickly prototype and iterate on that sort of thing mm-hmm. gets you to market faster. It gets your product out there. And, you know, the person who speaks German, maybe the, you know, the word might be longer. It doesn't get broken off in the button. And they're like, yo, these people didn't design this thing for me. I'm not going to use it. It's not for me. And the last is the things that you show people have to have to look like them. The pictures that you use in your marketing, the illustrations in your app, they, they gotta they gotta reflect the person who's looking at it. Yeah, that's more of a branding and you know like brand strategy side. But you can't use pictures that don't reflect your audience. Um, yeah, yeah, totally agree with that. I don't want to see a product of someone who doesn't look like me, but you're trying to attract me to your product. That doesn't that's really right. work. That's right. Now I am going to ask one a. A very, very hard question. Not sure if you're <laughs> going to be able to answer this one. But what is the worst design that you've seen created? The worst design that I've ever seen created? Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe a cluster bomb. I've never actually seen one, but I've, I've seen them. I know what they're like. Little tiny bombs that look super shiny mm-hmm. so that kids pick them up. Oh, oh. Like a cluster munitions, they, it's a, a big bomb that breaks into lots of tiny bombs and they look, they've got these little like wings on them in some, and so then they fly through the air and they can go all different directions, like little seeds of death and play their banned munitions, but countries still use them and little kids, you know, you're playing out in the field and you see this bright yellow, shiny thing, pick it up. Wow. Yeah. Like the process that a human has to go through to design such a thing. That's mm-hmm. really something else. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's dark. I'm sorry. No, um, no, but, no. Uh, I mean, it's yeah. honest. You asked. <laughs> okay, I'm going to bring it back to light. I'm going to bring it back to light. What is the <laughs> coolest design project or uh, item that you've ever seen? Oh, coolest. I don't know. I mean, I, I really enjoy all of the, you know, the branding and the, the web projects that are coming out right now. There was a long time ago, 
Uh, Nike did a website called, I think, A Better World, which was one of the first truly parallax websites. And they used a bunch of JavaScript to design it. For those people who were in the design industry when that thing launched, it was an absolute revolution to use JavaScript and HTML and CSS to design something that was responsive to the scroll action was like, wow. And everybody started going out and building these scrolly telling websites, me included. That was, you know, it was just a sea change in the industry, very much like when, you know, Ethan Marcotte like pioneered responsive design. And then everybody was like, oh my God, the world has opened up and now we can do all of this new stuff. So uh, those would be two examples. Okay, excellent. And you know what? We've been talking a lot about portfolio from a design perspective. And I want to get down to some of the details for people who are looking to be designers and listening to this podcast. So first question I want to go into before we actually say, what do you need to create in order to, you know, show off your skills? First off, what skills do you even need to have to have an opportunity to be a designer? Uh, It depends on what kind of designer. Okay, let's start off by breaking it it down down like that. What type of designer can you be? in the Mm -hmm. tech industry? (laughs) Let me speak from my experience as the the head of design at Nava. So Nava has a team of a little over 40 designers. We're broken down into a number of different skill areas, if you will, capabilities. So, you know, one of them is a content strategist. So we have a team of content strategists who are focused on strategy of, of language and words, making sure that interfaces have the information necessary. They're also focused on things like content audits, migrations of content from an old system to a new one, governance documentation. How does something get into a CMS? There's all this whole world of content strategy, which is like a design profession, which is something that we really hold dear at ABBA. We also have designer researchers. These are people who quite often have a strong grounding and a background in user experience research, finding out what people need, defining, you know, what those needs are, and then, you know, making recommendations and in many cases, turning around and then prototyping and building those things for them. And at Nava, we do a ton of research. It's what we're known for because we simply can't operate without that insight into the communities that we, we design for. We also have communications design team, uh, so people more focused on branding, internal comms, website work, brochures, and stuff like that. And we have front-end developers. They are designers, but they are much more tasked with taking the research, taking the prototypes and so on that the uh, designer researchers uh, define, and then building them into usable tools so that we can continue to test and iterate. Uh, Those people are heads down in code and uh, design systems quite often. Uh, but they also conduct research as well. So like even within Nava, there's a whole range from the much more front-end technical to the much more content technical of of types of roles that you can be. So (laughs) I think it's important to identify where you are in terms of your philosophy of design. Do you like the code? Do you like the words? Do you like imagery and brand? Do you like research? And then kind of build from there. Okay. And you keep using the term design director at that level. What does that actually entail? What is kind of your day to day? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it it definitely varies depending on the, you know, the size of the company at a smaller firm, probably 80% of my day was spent designing things, websites, 
um, you know, brand materials, uh, conducting research and so on. And so while you're going through all of these different roles and (laughs) before you get to your current role as VP, for people who are listening to the podcast and they want to become a designer, what are some of the skills and tools that you're using during your journey? Yeah. All right. Let me climb up on my little soapbox here. And I'm going to say that the first and most important thing that somebody should learn, get familiar with, understand if they want to become a designer is typography. Hmm. This may be controversial, but it makes up such a huge and hidden proportion of how we interact with the world if we are sighted people, right? It makes up a huge part of how we communicate our ideas as designers, how we're able to convince, to delay, to argue, to to bring joy is through type, you know, through words, uh, through their spacing, their size, you know, the relative balance. Um, It's a difficult thing to pull off. And I, I have done a lot of hiring in my life. One of the things that I think consistently hurts newer designers or designers in general is a lack of ability to typeset things correctly, not to use typography effectively because it muddles their message and it hides what they're trying to say. So yeah, that would be the first most important thing for me. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. I mean, you're the first designer that I've talked to that actually said that, but thinking about it in theory... Just think about different marketing materials that you see on a daily basis. That makes such a difference. Yeah. You you begin to notice it. So, you know, for people listening, think about a block of text. It doesn't matter what the font is or anything else like that. It's just like a big old paragraph of text. It's probably like seven or eight lines long. And then ask yourself, like, as you're looking at it on a screen and it, the, let's say you, you know, you, you resize your browser. And that block of text keeps getting wider and wider and wider. At what point does that block of text become unreadable? And that is a very specific mistake that a lot of people make in their portfolios is they'll just dump the block of text in there and they forget that like after a certain point, your eye gets lazy and you don't make it all the way across to the end of the line anymore because it's just too long across the screen. And so your eye lazily jumps to the next, but now you've lost the... The, the point of whatever is the, you know, the, the messages in that, that paragraph. And so making sure that you limit the width of your text blocks, like making sure that there's balance in the header, like does the header actually look like a header? Is it separated from the thing before? All of that matters so, so much and people consistently neglect it and it hurts them. Interesting. Okay. Now we talked about some tools, but are there any additional resources you recommend for designers or individuals who are looking to get into design to use in order to increase their skill level? I'm going to very selfishly recommend my own book, which is called Cross-Cultural Design from a Book Apart. I wrote that a few years ago just to, to help people come to terms with how to design in a, a globalized world. But quite honestly, any of the books from a book apart are great. There are ones on front-end development, on content strategy, on meetings, all sorts of things. There's even books about what it takes to write a book, if that's your thing. So finding some of those publishers that have a lot of that content, I think is a good, uh, a good place to look. Don't get too wrapped up in the, the dribbles and site inspires and those types of places of the web. They're great for a little bit of inspiration, but like, don't get bogged down in trying to find perfect matches for what you're trying to design. And 
you know, podcasts like this, like different public talks, I think are also a really great way to just hear from other people and, you know, do it in a light way without like expending too much energy, you know, just to get a little dash of inspiration. So Sanago, I know you don't think you're going to leave the episode without talking about what is actually the content covered in your book. And also I want to know the reason why you decided to even write a book. Yeah. When I first moved to New York, um, you know, like I said before, it's 2010, I was still super new in my career. And, you know, one of the things that I, I wanted to do was to grow, to make a name for myself. Like it's New York, you know, you got to stand up a little bit. And I started thinking about ways that I might get some speaking gigs and was not really that great at anything, but I finally got one speaking gig and I wanted to talk in that about cross-cultural design. And the only reason I got it was Denise Jacobs, who's a bigger designer as well, had some small interactions with me on Twitter. And I had given her a recommendation about something. And so then she put me in touch with these people and was like, he should speak at your conference. And so I went. And uh, yeah, that talk was about cross-cultural design. And so the idea percolated in my head, you know, years and years and years. And like, you know, seven years later or whatever, I finally then got the chance to write a book about it. And it's kind of like the culmination of all of my experiences. I'm Nigerian. I grew up in Nigeria to a Nigerian father and an American mother. I went to an international school, moved to cold, cold Michigan, (laughs) um, you know, for five years, moved to Japan for, you know, another seven years plus. And so then was in New York, right? And what I wanted to say was the world that we live in is so, you know, varied, Mm -hmm. uh, fractured, you know, different in so many respects, so different. In fact, that like, you can't even imagine how different people see the world from you. And if we're to really be successful as designers, we have to get out of this Western Swiss design mentality and start to make choices that account for a wider variety of people, a variety of experiences, a variety of languages, internet connections. So that was kind of the the inspiration there. And, you know, speaking of your upbringing and the different cultures and experiences that you've been around, how do you feel like that's influenced how you view design? So I think growing up in Nigeria, Nigeria, is, it's not fabulously wealthy, except for a few pockets and a few you know families. I grew up in the bush. There's not much around there. It's dusty. You know, we didn't have, there's not running water in my house. It's well water electricity sometimes, not always, et cetera. It's a dirt road past my house. And you got to be somewhat creative when you live in an environment like that. You kind of have to make do with a few things. And we were more blessed than others, definitely. But um, yeah, growing up, you kind of realize you there are certain constraints and you kind of accept those constraints and then you, you make something out of you know, what you have left. And I think the same thing is true with design. There are certain constraints that we have. The browser is a constraint. You can't touch a website yet. You know, the quality of a paper, the the thickness of it is a constraint. You know, you can print more heavily on it or lighter. You know, the the number of characters in a box, that's a constraint. And so I find that very interesting. I think my upbringing um, coming from not as much as other people kind of forced me to, to think about that in that way. 
And to end our conversation today, I do want to give the listeners a little bit more insight into what you do in your current role at NAVA. So why don't you tell us a little bit of like what your day today is like, because now it sounds like you're not too much in the nitty gritty from a design perspective, but want to hear more about that. Yeah. So NAVA is a public benefit corporation. We work with government stakeholders, you know, on the state and the federal level uh, to transform like services, different programs and entire agencies that are serving vulnerable or underserved populations. The, the goal and the idea here is that there's a lot of trust that's been lost with public institutions. You know, you go into the, the DMV and you got to wait for three hours, even though your appointment said 2.30, you're still there at 3.30. Loss of trust. There's, uh, you know, people applying for public benefits who think that they qualify and they send in the paperwork and then they, they, they don't get accepted, like loss of trust. And so we believe that we can use technology, the power of the internet and the power of our thinking quite practically to transform that and to help public institutions build trust. So, you know, my day to day isn't in designing things necessarily. It's in making sure that the design team is set up to succeed with the different clients and the different programs that we have that's doing that work. So whether it's making sure that, you know, hiring processes are streamlined so that teams can get staffed up quickly, like that will be something that I do. Whether it's working with the executive team to roll out a new line of business or a policy or a new report or something like that, doing that so that our teams can be more successful. So yeah, I've done a lot of design in my life. And I think right now, my my job is to help other people be better designers and help other people contribute to you know the company mission in the best way that they can. I don't have to get my hands dirty anymore. And I think that's a you know that, that's a nice place to be. You know what? That's a great segue to my next question, which is if someone is looking to become a better designer, what tips or advice do you have for them? Yeah, understand typography. <laughs> I would die on that hill. You got to understand type. You got to understand the visual structure. That's one thing. Now, people have to be willing to try things. They have to be willing to kind of step out of their comfort zone and fail a lot and fall on their face a lot. But it's in that, that quick iteration and picking yourself up that I think really cool things can happen. And I think, you know, just quite frankly, every designer should try their hand at performing real user research, mm. uh, talking to people. Watch someone use the website that you just designed if you've never done it before. Just just watch what they do. And it's in doing that that you better understand the power that you have, the, the thing that you make, like how it can change somebody's life for the better or for the worse. It can annoy them or it can make them get the job done faster. So being able to do that research and, and understand what, what users need, I think, is like a critical role of design. Excellent. And, you know, we've talked about your experience in design tools and resources that anyone listening to the episode can use. Two questions to end our episode and our time today. The first question is, we've talked about all these cool projects and even bad ones. What is the coolest (laughs) design project that you've actually done? Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, This is actually a personal project. So uh, for those who know me, I'm super interested in history. And I built a website and did a bunch of research, basically built an archive of uh, art, historical artifacts, stories, documents, maps, and so on, of uh, 15th and 16th century naval exploration 
The premise of the story is that there was a diary found. This diary was written by a Black Portuguese ship captain in the 15 and 1600s. And around that time, Portugal was one of the largest seafaring nations in the world. And they were some of the first Europeans to reach Japan in their trade expeditions. And this sailor was a captain on one of those ships. And so it's his, you know, a series of life stories that's kind of mixed with historical and archival images. And I really, you know, it's a project that I just enjoyed making so much, building the website and like putting everything together, um, you know, making sure that the, the story was um, as clear as possible. So yeah, a personal project, but it mixed my love of history with my love of web design, my love of illustration, you know, you know put it all together. Captain Da Costa. Yeah. Nice. I like that you have all of your creative interests come together <laughs> on one project, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And my final question today is around the future of design. So obviously design over the years has definitely changed. And we've talked about that a little bit in this conversation, but how do you see design shifting in the next couple of years? What do you see the future being? Oh, that's a tough one. In the past, you know, I, I have commented on the fact that I think design systems will become a lot more autonomous, whereas now we expend a lot of energy in code, in Figma, in Sketch, defining very complex design systems. What might happen when we overlay simple artificial intelligence to those to say things like, hey, system, I want a brand identity or I want a design system with big chunky buttons, lots of blue, kind of like a sky blue and a, a funky sans serif type. And it will say, bloop, 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 here you are, sir. And it'll give you all of that. And you kind of flip through the options and choose one you like. And like the Figma file will be all set up for you. <laughs> the, the idea scares me because it removes a lot of agency from designers. But in the same way that potters and ceramicists used to be in critical demand to make earthenware for everything from carrying wine to food. And now it's mostly an artistic endeavor, like that perhaps that's where interactive design would go in the future, but I don't know, not in a few years. Yeah. And so Nanga, we've covered quite a bit in today's episode. Want to open the floor to you though. Any additional comments or parting words that you want to give my audience today? Well, I would be Super excited to, to hear from people for those who are considering a, a career in civic tech. Nava is very often hiring, not only for design, but other roles. Um, so please check us out at navapbc.com. And, you know, just would encourage people to, yeah, try new things, right? Like read weird books, read them in languages that you don't understand. Get a, get a design book in, in Swahili. <laughs> and use it for something you know there's all these sorts of ways that i think we can flex and make the design community more reflective of who we are Nango, thank you for your time today i appreciate it and i'm sure the listeners really appreciate learning more about you and hearing your story i you know i i've enjoyed it uh, i hope these answers made sense to somebody besides me so Thank you for listening to Black Tech Unplugged. I'm Dina McKay, and you can find the show on all social media platforms under Black Tech Unplugged. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this episode. And if you have a few extra minutes, make sure to leave a five-star review too. It will help me out a lot and help other people find the podcast. Until next time.